Hey everybody, welcome back to Bottomless Coffee. And on this episode, we're gonna be talking about something that I think you'll find that we've kind of been building up to since the beginning, anti-racism. Um, and just to ground you in this specific moment, which is something we do not usually do, it is March, 2021, uh, a couple of miles down the street from here, uh, the trial of Derek Chauvin is underway. Um, roughly a year ago, George Floyd was murdered maybe two miles from where I'm sitting right now, which sparked a global outcry that introduced me um, and uh, our guest, our special guest that I will introduce you to you in a second, to the concept and the idea and the practice of anti-racism. Um, now, I would say, generally speaking, like from a the point of view of a black person. Uh, I was engaging in regular uh, racial equity work on a pretty regular basis. And it was kind of a surprise or eureka or duh moment when I discovered that there was a, there was a way of looking at the world as um, racism, uh, as a problem to be solved through a particular practice. So. That's what we're going to talk about today. I think it's going to be really interesting. Um, and so I guess the first kind of surprise I have for you is that Brendan Phillips is actually here for the conversation. Hey, Brendan. Hey, how's it going, Drew? Oh, I'm wonderful. I'm glad we could finally fit something into your schedule. And I'm glad that it's this particular episode um, that you're here for. How have you been over the last couple of weeks? I've been good, you know, just keeping on, keeping on, looking for the light at the end of the tunnel in the pandemic. Uh, really excited for this conversation, excited to be back on the podcast, excited to be back with two of my bestest friends to talk about this subject. Yes, hashtag besties. Um, and that does kind of ground us uh, in another moment. The country, America at the very least, is, really seems to be turning a corner on the pandemic. And so you are actually in the same room with another person for this podcast. Um, but let me ask you another question before, right before we introduce the guests. Because I think there, is there another person in the room as well? Uh, yes, we have a live studio audience, actually. We have a live studio audience. And you wouldn't know this, but just the previous episode... Um, the concept of the conversation topic was expectations. And we discussed the idea of having like a live virtual audience or a live studio audience for the podcast. And, you know, I thought that would just be yeah, almost absurd. And yet here we are so quickly after. So, yeah. Yay. I mean, the stars really aligned for us to, to be in the same room and have a couple friends here. And so it felt like a little bit of normalization. Um, for what to look forward to, to when we can maybe do all of us, including our guests and you and me in the same room for this podcast. Oh, well, that would just be a very special episode. Indeed. Um, and let's stop hiding the ball, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're, I think we've built enough suspense. Um, please welcome to the podcast, Colin Gillens. How are you doing today? I am uh, having a very, very good day. Yay! I'm really glad to hear that. Um, just for the people who are not watching, neither of 
uh, them, Colin nor Brendan, are having coffee. <laughs> that's okay. I will be caffeinated abo- enough for both of them. And um, I just want to, by way of introduction, let everyone know uh, Colin is the friend that I really discovered anti-racism with. We have had hours and hours and hours of conversation on the topic. Um, I thought he would be a really wonderful guest to have on the podcast because we have, uh, we, we disagree. I don't want to say frequently, but we, <laughs> at the very least, you know, we don't always approach things from the same perspective, even if we get to the same result. Um, and that's where a lot of our conversation lies, like why we believe what we believe, even if those beliefs are the same. Um, so it's through Colin that I had that eureka moment of anti-racism being a practice that we can actually talk through. And um, Colin, I'm gonna, we're gonna dive right in. This is going to be a vulnerable conversation. Um, usually Brendan is the one who asks challenging questions, but uh, I think I get to ask one or two of him in the conversation. Uh, so Colin, you know, if you, you if you want to take a few minutes to say something in advance of the question, you can. But otherwise, I want to ask you what your earliest memory of a racist moment is. Okay, so this is actually going to be an interesting story that I think uh, friends of mine are pretty familiar with because it's one of those just indelible uh, moments from my uh, childhood. It would have come around uh, middle school. Um, we were in homeroom. Uh, filling out some demographic paperwork. Uh, my understanding was that it was information that uh, the state just needed. Um, and a South Asian uh, friend of mine asked the teacher what box they should select mm. for the demographic information, not finding that they felt you know, that there was a box available that was appropriate uh, for them. So this white teacher looked over the form and told them to just select white. And Hmm. the conclusion that I drew just in my mind in that moment was that no one cared that my deeply melanated South Asian friend was either deeply melanated or South Asian. Hmm. They cared that he wasn't black. And that was my earliest memory of a racist moment. Um, It wasn't overt racism or anything directed or even targeted at me, like some sort of so-called microaggression. Um, It was just understanding that the state wanted me and other black kids um, just seemingly singled out in this way. Uh, And yeah, to have that be one of those uh, first experiences, it just really let me know that um, white people controlled the ladder to that clubhouse, and they had a sign on the door that just said, no blacks. And the, so you feel... Oh, that's like the defaultness mm-hmm. of whiteness, is that's really apparent, because if they say, okay, well, you're not this, that's something else, mm-hmm. okay, we'll just put you as white. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know you've told me stories before about You know, if you go places to get your hair done or you're getting, you know, anything that has to do with appearances, the default is always whiteness, Mm -hmm. which is not something that I've ever had to deal with. It's nice when the world is made for (laughs) (laughs) you. 
Okay, so Colin, it sounds like your um, your real your takeaway from that early moment was feeling like you were put on notice um, at a very early age that you know the world as you knew it at the time was made for one group of people and you were not in that group. Right. Okay. Well, let me turn to Brendan now. Um, do you have an early memory of a racist moment or a memory of being accused of racism or uh, something along those lines? Yeah. Um, w- when we were thinking about this question, it was kind of striking how when I was trying to go back through my memories and be like, where were instances of racism? And I thought mm-hmm. to my early memories, the the contrast with Colin saying, you know, there was this indelible moment that kind of like, that's when I realized something, um, which was probably one of, you know, many moments. Um, I realized I was on the opposite side of like, I didn't have something that was the seminal moment for when I realized that this was yeah. a thing. And then looking back, I can identify so many instances where had I been on the receiving end of it, then that would have oh. affected me in that way. Um, yeah. But then realizing that all of those things did happen and I did notice them makes me realize that like I didn't catalog those moments, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's actually kind of jarring to realize. Um, and that, you know, I, I went to a mostly white school, started to notice that that was the case, and then how people, you know, who were, who were black, who were Asian, were treated differently, um, was just something that I was like, huh, I noticed that, and it's bad, but it didn't, you know, imprint on me emotionally. Um, so one, one thing I hope that um, we should, I feel like we should really uh, make clear is that there is a real age difference um, in the conversation. Like, Colin, do you happen to remember about how old you were or what year it was when you had that? I don't actually. I'll I'll tell you, I'm I'm 38 uh, now. Uh, I don't remember exactly what uh, year it would have been, how old I would have been, but I can tell you it would have been when I was in middle school. Um, So for me, that would have been my uh, sixth, seventh, uh, and eighth grade years. Um, And this likely would have happened at some point around my uh, sixth year or seventh year uh, in school so we could say 25 years ago oh yeah clearly for you now now what's why this is important brendan is that you just had a birthday right yes i just turned 25 right and so the experience that colin had 25 years ago uh and leads me to believe at least from brendan's take is that for years and years and years after this jarring experience that Colin had, this was still ongoing. And if we don't uh, introduce each other and other people to a practice or some way of really noticing when racist, act, racist uh, actions are taking place and um, giving people kind of a response to those actions for Brendan, then we're just going to be in the same cycle when um, Brendan is 38 and we, we're still doing bottomless coffee and we're still talking about anti-racism and someone Brendan's age comes on and they're like, oh, wow, 
I wish I had recognized at the time that this was wrong. I wish that I had had the tools or the practice necessary to do something about it at the time and to really to really stop that kind of cycle. Um, and so that, for me, at least, is what I want people to get out of this episode. And if you want the future to be different than the past, then you have to make different choices. You have to inform yourself and fill yourself with the knowledge of different things. And one of those things, for me, is the practice of anti-racism. Yeah, there, there are nods in the room, so I feel as though. <laughs> that when the caffeine moved my mouth, the words, the words made sense. So that's good. Um, so I want to ask you just an, another contrasting question. Uh, Colin, do you have a, your earliest memory of an anti-racist moment? Um, so this one is actually kind of, um, was a little harder uh, for me because I started thinking about the concept of what I understand anti-racism to actually be, and I'm sure, you know, we're going to, to get into that, but um, uh, trying to come to the earliest memory of, I guess, what I would have understood to be uh, anti-racism, even without having the language, having that vernacular to uh, communicate <clears throat> around it. Um, it probably came through this internship program um, that I was in. I'm not actually going to uh, name it because uh, part of the story is probably a little bit of a, a read. Uh, that, <laughs> okay. Well, it, it's just that the organization, I'm sure, has changed a lot over the last 20, 21 years uh, from when this uh, sort of situation would have happened. And um, I guess I, I just want to be uh, sensitive to the fact that I don't actually, I'm, I'm not familiar with what they may have developed into. I only had sure. the experience that I had. Um, okay. So I can, I can tell you um, the organization would place well-qualified uh, minority internship candidates um, with candidates who, uh, or sorry, with, um, with uh, corporate players um, specifically in order to turn around uh, this lack of diversity and representation uh, in corporate spaces, in professional corporate spaces. Um, so the company was actually started by a professional executive in that corporate world uh, who literally quit his job and made it his mission to make sure that other minority individuals literally had a path to where he was able to, uh, to achieve. Hmm. Um, and the read I'm going to tell you is a little bit light. Um, and <laughs> it's, well, it, again, it's, you'll, you'll see what I guess I'm, I'm getting into. Sure. Here. Sure. Uh, but, uh, I understand there are different chapters all over. And so again, this was just the experience that I had in the local chapter where, Oh I my gosh, over. read them, read them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I would describe the way that they wanted people to present themselves. It, there were trainings that were involved, and I would describe the, the trainings that they gave and the ways that they wanted people to present themselves as corporate professional with a tan. And okay. uh, wow. in particular, this was true for young black men. Um, so even though I could tolerate fitting into their mold of how they wanted people to present themselves in order mm. to have access to these opportunities that they were, you know, affording us. 
Um, I remember being conscious of the very real harm that I felt like they were doing to a lot of the candidates, in particular the black men just being from, you know, coming from my, you know, perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, it was more than things like a professional dress code and more than some of the things that we get into or we see gotten into now in terms of professional ways that you're able to wear your hair or not. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the thing that hurt me the most was this idea that you had to shave in order to be presented as professional. Oh. And I don't know that a lot of people know this, but there is a high prevalence of what's called pseudo-folliculitis barbae in the black male population. Oh, is that what happens to my face when I shave with the wrong razor? <laughs> so, you, you have to grow hairs there first, but yes, for, uh, <laughs> for people like Colin with fuller beards. So yeah. a lot of people would just refer to it somewhat um, inaccurately as ingrown. razor burn or ingrown yeah. hairs. Um, but you may have noticed in your own personal experience or seen in others that there is real damage that people do yep. to themselves by trying to maintain a certain aesthetic that they're led to believe they have to, that they're yeah. in, in many times, in, in many ways, enforced in certain uh, professions that they have to. Uh, I'm talking about open sores and, you know, <laughs> lifelong scarring that people <laughs> endure. Um, so it hurt me then as one of those men and, you know, it, it hurts me even more now understanding that this whole system was actually being perpetuated by these professionals, some of whom themselves were black men with visible yep. scarring on their own faces yep. from having to, from accepting that this mm-hmm. was just the way that they had to navigate the world. Um, and it, Every it, time I talk to you, I swear, Colin, <laughs> I have another one of those, <gasps> or you or aha, I think Oprah calls them aha moments, so I'm not allowed to do that. Um, well, I, I just learn something different, a nuance, like you add to the perspective, and... It, and I have to then backtrack to my own life and think about, you know, how it impacted me. You know, as, you know we're in the gay community. Mm. Back in my day, you know, it wasn't cute to have a beard when you were below a certain age. Exactly. Right? Uh, and But I had all of these skincare things I had to do. <laughs> I mean, it was basically like a small apothecary in my bathroom because I didn't want what was going on to happen. Uh, to my face that way. And so you, uh, you're picking at things that I did not know were there. And uh, thank you for sharing that experience. I know that was um, emotional for you. Uh, We we talk a lot about um, diversity and inclusion and, you know, respecting and celebrating people's differences. But I, I think it's just important to understand, you know, a lot of times what those differences actually are and how they really Mm -hmm. impact people. 
Um, a lot of that, that work is what the work of anti-racism, I guess, can, can really bring us is, um, is seeing, uh, that different people's experiences, um, ought to be, you know, explored in the ways that would be, would be beneficial for them, for their own communities. Um, and so again, to have these, uh, to have this organization, of minority professionals um, be the gatekeepers of which minorities would be even acceptable into mm. this larger uh, community to be mm-hmm. our representatives. Um, it also leads to a lot of that damage that lasts because you start to think, well, I have to do this in order to be that. Yeah. I'm not good enough if I'm not that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well hold on. Um, because I believe this was going an anti-racist moment. Yeah. And um, it, but you, you, know, you painted a really good racist moment. Yeah, and it was not a light read. It's so nuanced because the organization itself was born of an anti-racist mm. practice. But at the same time as this organization was born of an anti-racist practice, it perpetuated racism yeah. in the way that it gatekept against who got to be included and how wow. you would get to be included. So that's the, the nuanced light read, I think, on their kudos for the anti-racism. Yeah. But, you know, we really need to take a, a fuller approach to make sure that we're truly able to bring our whole selves to the things that we do. And so were there any conversations about, or just recognition of that like forced conformity into, you know, whiteness basically that was happening in that organization or was it accepted? That's like, no, we are starting from behind. This is what we need to do just to get to the same starting point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to dive into that like a little bit, I'll tell you that I know they formalized exactly what I'm talking about in that you weren't able to participate as one of those first-term interns when I uh, joined this organization. You weren't able to participate if you didn't present a certain way. The door was closed to you. And they checked on... You know, there were programs, trainings that you went to. It was something that you checked in with. And so they understood your willingness to comply to be a member in this, um, in this program. And they formalized when and how those rules would be loosened. As I recall, it wasn't until you were in your third internship term um, that they would start to relax on how they let you present yourself because, you know, maybe you could have a beard because you're coming back and working with the same people who you've previously worked with. Other people who you're working with have a beard. You're not going to grow it too long Mm. and et cetera, et cetera. But they formalized this sort of, you know, these are our rules. And it's just, it's not that they shouldn't have had rules, of course, Mm -hmm. but what the rules are and where they come from. I think um, they could have benefited from being a little bit more sensitive to that. And in the 20, 21 years since my experience, 
uh, I would like to think that with all the conversations that, you know, have been going on, uh, not just in minority communities, but, you know, in wider communities that they would have done so. Mm. And I don't know, I have not checked in Certainly. with this organization, <laughs> which is again, why I'm not naming them, whether or not they have. Um, so Brendan, I'm going to come to you in a second and ask you about your earliest memory of an anti-racist moment. But I'm also just going to clue everyone into something um, that they certainly don't know. There is a secret, hidden, unpublished first episode of Bottomless Coffee, where the production value is just so bad that we couldn't put it out. But in it, Brendan and I talk a lot about our differing perspectives um, when it comes to like life and everything. And one of the things I remember saying is that when I hear about a wrong that needs to be righted or take a principled stance on something, I just go off and running. Like I'm just immediately activated and after it. And uh, how that relates to anti-racism in this particular moment is that I hear from Colin's story, his experience, and I'm like, oh, no, that can't continue to happen. And so... And so when Colin says that he's not sure if that organization has changed their practices or what have you, you know, I have written a note to circle back to Colin to get the name, (laughs) check on those practices and policies and have them changed because I'm not going to have people, you you know, this is, this is me. Uh, I'm putting, I'm now going from my podcast hat to my politician community leader hat, (laughs) not going to have people jeopardizing their health, jeopardizing the quality of their lives for some assimilationalist standard. I don't even know if I said that, that word right. But some standard. It's, um, that is unacceptable to me. And it's just something that I can see myself pinning a letter or making some calls or notifying the NAACP or whomever about. Uh, I, had to, I had to share that for a second. Uh, so, Brenda, hey. Hi. That was a that was a good follow up question. Back to being a podcast host. Um, the good good follow up on uh, the, this is we're recording this uh, shortly after the Oprah interview with uh, Megan and Harry, and she had yes. a moment where she said, "No, no, who's having those conversations?" And I feel like you got mm. to you got to the point where you're like, "No, no, what is that organization?" Right. I got my I got my letter writing pen ready. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay, thank you. Any um, any reference to me being either Oprah or Megan is welcome. Um, when just whenever whenever you feel like you want to draw that <laughs> <in the> box. <laughs> but Brendan, what is your earliest moment or memory of an anti-racist moment? So, I don't know if it's earliest, but one of the most salient was actually one that I had with Colin, um, mm-hmm. and it's it's salient. This this may sound, you know, self-absorbed, but salient because it was me doing the thing. Um, oh, sure. And, and so that's, that's when it really gets brought home because, you know, if you observe all of these things and be like, yes, that's bad and we should work to change these in a, in a structural way. Um, but, like, I have black friends. I am not racist. Like, I am mm-hmm. fighting against these structural things. You don't necessarily delineate the the personal and the structural and how they interact. Um, And so I think it was when we were going out to some bar and there was some reference to the song Gold Digger. And so I was singing along to that song 
and um said, oh were you the uncensored version the uncensored version <laughs> um and uh got to the line that rhymes with gold digger um and uh-huh. sang that and i was like i'm singing a pop song that's on the radio and also i'm like with my black friends and you know yeah did not think anything of it and the yeah. way that colin put it was yeah you know that part in the matrix where everything slows down and the world kind of stops that um yeah and and so because we're friends and because colin is the kind of person who will have those conversations um down to the level of like you know here is how it makes me feel here's the context of it here are all of those things um he stopped and had that conversation with me that's like well actually no you know even if the intent is this and the context is this here is how you know singing that word actually affects people mm-hmm. and i was like oh damn i did not realize that yeah i'm part yeah. of the problem sometimes um and so it was a really salient moment cuz cuz i had already kind of you know had this picture of myself that's like i'm on the right side um yeah and so it was striking to be like, well, no, sometimes you're not. Um, and it's really like a, it's a practice thing, not a mindset thing. And I really think that that is so important right there, this notion that it's a practice and not a mindset, because so many people would just never consider that I'm a racist, you know, um, because they know what they know and feel about themselves and their community and who they have relationships with and they don't necessarily in every action and i'm not saying that in every action you have to you know uh have some mental woke police uh running um in the background but like um it's important that people understand that racism is a system that exists and you can operate within that system or you can choose to operate against that system there you're still just the human being who you are how are you fitting into that system yeah um and i i think also there is this idea that some things are viewed as okay Right, like they were playing a song in a in a bar or a club that they really should not have been playing. Um, but how are you supposed to know that if you're not having the conversations like the one that you had with Colin? And uh, that's like, that's the part that makes it an anti-racist moment is that mm-hmm. the the actual practice of saying, "Hey, this is the conversation that we need to have at this moment," and then dissecting it, and then coming up with a different thing to do you know, for the rest of my life is the practice of anti-racism. Yeah. And recognizing it, even just taking that lesson, you're like, oh, okay. Sometimes they play things on the radio or what have you that are racist still in 2021. Um, Or that promote... Take that. Go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, or that that promote a particular, you know, sort of uh, view. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe they have... Confederate generals carved into a mountain still in 2021. Maybe they have roads named Confederate Avenue still in 2021. Um, You start 
I, in my opinion, you start looking around and seeing the world in a different way and that there are just a lot of things that need to be changed. Um, and, uh, you know, that's why we have this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to take a coffee break. I know Colin wants to keep going and plowing through, but uh, we're going we're, we're gonna to take a minute. Okay, be right back. Okay. Uh, we are back with Bottomless Coffee with Brendan Phillips and Colin Gillens. Uh, it was a shorter break than usual, but Colin did give some backstory. And what I'm thinking is that we will uh, just run the full version of this episode uh, for our Patreon subscribers. And for those people um, who are not subscribed, you'll just not get to hear what's behind the coffee break. <laughs> that seems fine with me. Look at you getting <laughs> content behind a paywall. Fancy. Uh, so, um, Brendan, I think you have this next question. Just from the way that it's structured, it's a very Brendan-like question. Uh, do you want to go for it? <laughs> well, you, you know me. I like I like defining things. Um, so we were talking about earlier how you know anti-racism is a practice and not a mindset. And that seems mm-hmm. pretty important. We've used the the word anti-racism to describe events and practices and you know things that we ought to be doing so i wanted to see can we get a working definition of what anti-racism actually is um because then we can contextualize what we think needs to happen based on that colin uh in terms of the practice i can tell you that i don't think you need any sort of uh, big grand plan um for me it's all about what's happening in the sphere uh, in which you operate and what you have okay. access to, uh, to impact. Um, anti-racism is all about the promotion of racial equity in all regards. So um, I actually think that one of the most impactful uh, parts of Dr. Kendi's book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, came pretty early uh, in the text when um, he makes it clear that racism these racial inequities are self-perpetuating at this mm-hmm. stage. And once you understand that racial inequities are self-perpetuating, then you can appreciate the concept that there's no such thing as um, a race-neutral program or institution or system um, because there are always going to be these equity stakes at, at play. Um, and so once you accept this, uh, then the seemingly uh, radical sort of notion that he lays out next is actually a whole lot less radical and just a whole lot more logical, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so what he uh, suggests is that if you want to remedy racism, you need to confront it with anti-racism and the way that a lot of people are going to understand the language around that is that past discrimination is only going to be remedied with present discrimination. And present discrimination is only going to be remedied with future discrimination of an anti-racist, hmm. you know, um, perspective. To even things out. Yeah. And, 
it's it's strange because I think a lot of people are fearful of these sorts of notions. You hear the language from uh, a lot of people um, in that majority white community um, about that that sort of uh, framing of my slice of the pie and it's a zero sum mm-hmm. game uh, sort of situation. And the thought is that you can't actually have progress for this group X without, you know, some sort of, uh, um, without some sort of a cost to another group. Mm. And I think that we really just need to realize that that's actually entirely not the case at all. Um, and that we'll all benefit, uh, actually from, uh, creating greater equity. So can you make that a little bit more concrete? Because mm-hmm. you, you have a framework for, we have past discrimination, mm-hmm. we now have some kind of language and eye for identifying what is wrong. Mm-hmm. Then you say the, the fix is you know, present discrimination in a positive way. What does that actually look like in terms of practices? Well, I mean, you can think of the internship program that I was mentioning before, right? It's um, it's actually, I think, pretty simple to uh, understand that if you don't have racial representation in uh, a particular, let's say, a business, uh, then it's important that the anti-racist approach is to incorporate that racial diversity that you are lacking. Um, it's important that people do this in ways that are authentic and actually constructive, you know, mm-hmm. um, of course, and not just some form of, uh, tokenism, uh, people obviously need to be qualified, but that's right there where we get to the rub of so much of it. Um, you can think about the, um, I want to say this was a professor who was just fired from some university. Maybe it was Georgetown. Oh, okay. Um, this professor that was just fired from Georgetown for, uh, in the, in the recording in which she is recorded saying what she says negatively about, uh, black students being just at the bottom of her class and the way that, um, the way that she presents that information in the, in Mm. the call, um, it makes clear her perception of the student's in which she has been entrusted to, you know, to educate. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's just, yeah, that, that's the, the sort of thing. I think um, people can get at it in... Uh, so let's... Yeah, I'm sorry, I lost the... Lost the no, you're good, you're good, because I, I love that hypothetical, right? Now, at the beginning, Colin, you said you don't need a grand plan. Um, I actually love a grand plan, right? And so if what I want uh, in my anti-racist practice, like my end game is to eliminate racism, right? Go big. No more racism at all. Um, You primarily focused on policy and legislation. Um, I heard bits of income inequality there uh, and just like a reallocation of resources. But from... uh, like a social and cultural perspective, um, things can be done a di- little differently. And that op-ed that I mentioned earlier, um, in that writing, I talked about needing to have these types of conversations with white allies so that they know 
what is actually going on in uh, communities of color uh, in, a, in an intimate way. And they can speak on that vulnerability when they're, um, when they're acting in allyship in an anti-racist way. So let's say, right, that we are going for Jerome's endgame, uh, Jerome's anti-racist agenda uh, of uh, TM. ending racism. <laughs> and we have this teacher who is uh, being straight up racist in their classroom. So in that sphere, we've got the students, we've got the parents, we've got the other teachers, and we've got the principal who are all in a position to act in an anti-racist way to kind of combat what that racist teacher is doing, right? So the students can speak up, but we know they don't have a lot of power in the classroom, but they can go to the principal, they can go to social media, they can talk to each other, they can talk to the black students if they happen to not be white students um, and show support. Uh, Other teachers, uh, if they are aware of what's happening, can say, hey, this practice is uh, not great. (laughs) And here are the reasons why. They can have kind of the same conversation that Colin had with Brendan regarding the Gold Digger song. And ideally, the teacher's uh, perspective will widen a bit and they'll uh, change their ways. Or the principal, if they're paying attention and they notice, you know, they can take administrative action to replace this teacher, assuming their union rules allow it, to replace this teacher with someone um, who does not have a racist bent, right? So within their sphere, there are a lot of things that can be done, um, depending on who the person is. So question for yeah. the, the anti-racist experts on the panel. Um, and budding ones like yourself. Don't make me turn <laughs> this question back on you. The way, that, the way that we've got this working definition so far seems very uh, reactive in that it's cast in, you know, if you see X, you do Y. And that, that actually may be, you know, necessary for the context of anti-racism. But I was wondering if there is a proactive way to phrase it in mm-hmm. terms of oh, practices. Let me, you don't even have to finish your question because I am ready for you. <laughs> <laughs> As uh, people of color, generally speaking, um, I do not believe that we are the perpetuators of racism. We do, do not act to perpetuate systems that oppress ourselves. Um, however... Uh, There are uh, white-bodied people that I'm sure we are all walking in uh, the same network with who do act either through ignorance or intention to perpetuate those systems. But I can't go into that person's house and raise their children. I can't go to their family on Thanksgiving and like shut down their racist grandfather, who you know is then like leaving the house and walking all over the neighborhood just... Uh, infecting their community like a like the coronavirus or what have you. Um, we it is imperative that our white bodied allies be knowledgeable in the practice so that they can not police their own families, but they can help elevate and heal their own families and keep them from causing harm to uh, to me. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is one. Thing that I am gonna add a little bit to that, uh, yeah. Jerome. 
um, in that you were talking about how um, you don't think that necessarily black people are responsible for perpetuating um, these racist practices against the black community. And mm. I would actually, this is going to be one of those areas where I would disagree. Um, okay. I think that there has been a certain internalization of these um, racist practices and uh, mm. these uh, systems and perceptions that lead to racial inequity um, that That's are fair. carried on by black people themselves. Um, and it is nuanced in that I don't think that some black people who are perpetuating these types of uh, perceptions are aware that they are. And I think that some are aware that they are, but they feel justified in doing so. And again, I'm just coming mm -hmm. back to the, um, the internship uh, mm -hmm. situation uh, that I had. I mean, it, it sticks with me to this day, seeing the faces of some of those black men scarred. Yeah. And knowing that I was intended to look up to them. Yeah. And this was what they were telling me that I needed to do to myself. Yeah. So that's the so I think that's like the the crux of the issue is putting together the different things we've said in that there is perpetuation of racist practices by the people who are oppressing. There is also not only no incentive to change them, but like almost not enough awareness to even change them. And then on, on the part of, you know, the people who are being oppressed, there is a, some internalization of these things to try and play within the system, you know, to sometimes just like survive. And there is the idea that it's like, well, it's also not our job to educate the oppressors to, to, to fix these things. And so if all of those things are true, the equilibrium is that nothing will change. And so the, the challenge is like, okay, well, what is the practice? Um, how, do, how do you get the activation energy there to actually change things? Because the way you've set it up is nothing's going to change. Can I, I guess, jump in on that one a little? Uh, okay. <laughs> I, um, I, I want things to change very much. Uh, and I think that the way that that happens is really just everyone recognizing the role that they play in mm -hmm. what is a system in which we all exist, right? Um, black people have a certain, um, a, a certain amount of agency, <laughs> um, over, of course, ourselves. And I'm sure we'll circle back to concepts around this uh, as we continue talking, right? Um, but we're not going to be able to fix these systems, Jerome, like you're saying. We're not going to be able to fix these systems ourselves, but we should be able to identify the ways in which these systems hold us back and hold us down and decide that we're not going to assist those systems. Yes. Um, 
and communicate to our wider communities exactly how we're impacted by them and get commitments from those people in the wider community. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also, that is the same practice for our white allies. Yes. Look at what you're doing. Ask how what you are doing is perpetuating a system of oppression. If you if your if your immediate thought is oh I'm not doing anything that perpetuates a system of oppression, go get a book <laughs> <laughs> and do some reading because you're simply unaware of the actions that you're taking that are perpetuating that system. Yes, and I think um, Brendan, you mentioned uh, how people don't want to educate the oppressor or what have you. I think. I, I will happily tell you to go get a book. If you get the book and you've done some reading and you have questions, that is a different conversation than someone telling you that you need to go to the library and do some reading. <laughs> or, or having to read the book to them, you know. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but and you mentioned, again, that you think uh, from the way that we posited uh the actions that needed to be taken, that nothing would change. I would, from my perspective, mention that the actions I've taken have, have created several uh, groups in my community, white-led, that are devoted to anti-racism. They get together, they meet, they talk, they come back to me every now and then and ask me for guidance, um, which is fair, one, because... You know, I hold myself up as a leader in this space and also because, you know, I helped create the group. <laughs> um, so that's fine. But I do I do see things changing um, that you would not unless we had a conversation that was like, hey, what are people I don't know in your neighborhood doing vis-a-vis uh, -vis anti-racism? Right. Right. Okay. Good. You know, I'm going to I'm going to take an executive decision and call another coffee break. <laughs> Unilateral a... declaration of coffee break. <laughs> Fine, buddy. We are going to take a sip and be right back. Hey everybody, we are back. Um, you know, through these coffee breaks, I think what we what I'm really discovering is that there is just more and more and more that we could talk about, that we could unpack and really dive deep into. Um, and so I am hopeful that Colin will come back and we can have more discussions on the topic in the future. I don't know. He's making a face. You should I'll do an entire podcast later about on. <laughs> um, but now I'm going to ask a question. Um, Brendan wrote it, but I'm going to ask it. Uh, have you, hmm, I don't, I kind of feel like I should ask Brendan his own question. And so <laughs> let me, let me give that a go. Brendan, have you recontextualized the previous experiences you've had with racism with your new views? Uh, what would you have done differently in XYZ instance, given what you know now? Um, and would you do things differently 
even if the cultural moment was different. And we might go after that phrase, cultural moment, because I don't know how I feel about it. (laughs) (laughs) I I love using my own notes as a question for me. Um, No, it's interesting. The the inspiration for that question was when I was thinking about the, you know, cataloging the racist moments that I had observed earlier in my life. Um, And like, when you do that exercise, you have to bring, you know, the lens that you have now, which is very, very different from what you had at the time. So, like, yes, totally have recontextualized things that I experienced um, in a really drastic way. Because once you start having these conversations to be like, okay, what are racist practices? And you identify those things. That's almost like an abstract and then you go back and you're yeah. like, oh, no, there are concrete instances of when I've seen this, of when I've done this, of when I've witnessed this and not done anything about it. Um, so I think it really helps to, you know, when you learn a new thing, almost like learning a new skill, mm-hmm. you would say, okay, based on the previous experiences I've had, how would I practice this again? So it, it can be things like, you know, when we were talking about the, the teacher instance, um, like, I've, I've seen that instance, you know, going to a mostly white Catholic school with a handful of black people. Are there times that, you know, they said things that were, you know, racist and probably made people around me feel bad that I didn't even register? Yes. And then saying, what would I have done differently? Um, hopefully say something. Um, and that, that kind of that exercise serves as a map for what you would do when that situation comes back in the future. Cause as we've noted, these things are kind of cyclical and self-perpetuating. So it's not like, it's not like the racism is going to be new. They're not finding new ways to do it. It's uh well, <laughs> you'd be surprised. <laughs> More on that. <laughs> they usually circle back to old ideas. Um, I will. I agree with that, with the idea that uh, there are these old patterns, you know, history repeats um, I do want to dig just a little bit deeper into what you particularly would have done. Say you were a student in that class again. Um, do you think you would have confronted the teacher directly? Do you think you would have just spoken with other white students in the class or other students of color? Would you have gone to the principal? Like, what action do you think you would have taken? And I want us to be clear here that we are kind of talking about this situation that you've contrived out of what I was describing um, because it's not really the, oh. the situation no. that happened. I, I didn't have, you know, all, all of the oh, details at the front of mind um, with what he happened. Said with he, had, uh, he said he'd been there. He said he is yeah, uh, he, in like a white school. kid in a Catholic school. He has been in that situation before. Oh, okay, okay. So I, I thought you were referring to the situation that I brought up earlier with the uh, now-fired professor. Okay. Right, right, okay. right, right. Yeah, um, I mean, one of, one of the things that I've learned, uh, you know, from Colin, from other people having these conversations, is, like, the knee-jerk reaction to stand up and be like, that's not right, and, and yell about it, mm-hmm. and then have a detailed thesis on why it's not right and then the things that you should do differently isn't always the most effective thing to do. True. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as a, as a model, Jerome, for uh, the mother of, it sounds like, multiple anti-racism covens, 
Um, <laughs> the best thing is actually to to organize people into having those conversations. Um, and if you come at it not saying, this is wrong, here's what you should do, but you're saying, here is an issue that we've identified, does everyone agree that it's an issue? And then getting people talking about how to solve it is way, way more effective. Yeah, I, I think people should understand that we're not uh, deputizing you know, members of the woke police uh, <laughs> to just start roaming the streets with, you know, whatever ideas they, they might uh, think they need to, to point out everywhere so, they see them like that. Yeah, it's about having reason. those conversations and driving that message forward in the circles in which you operate. Okay. I agree. And, but um, the reason that I really want to dive deep on that hypothetical in particular with Brendan in particular, is because Brendan um, really mentioned, he mentioned a template or wanting to know what to do. And a lot of the work is done in running through these hypothetical scenarios so that you are ready when it happens. Like as a, and this, as a black person, I had the talk with my parents um, and the talk is when they sit me down and they said, if you are pulled over, this is what you do. Um, and there are similar talks for different circumstances. And so it's, it's just like a part of life to where if, when you are encountering a racist action, what, what do you do, right? Um, so at that stage in my life, it's, uh, it was survival, right? So, you know, do whatever the officer says or... Don't pull over until you get home, whatever the parental advice was. But if you're able to go back through these hypotheticals, then when you speak with someone who's a little bit younger, uh, you might be able to share your thoughts and provide some insights. If you become a parent, you might be able to share these thoughts and insights with your child. Um, and while I'm, you know, I don't know if anyone gets to deputize you as the woke police, you know, I'm also not going to deny you your agency. Um, you you have the ability to make a change within your sphere, and I hope that you do so. Yeah, um, it's more an ordained minister of wokeness <laughs> than, a, than a policeman. Um, but yeah, I think like if you could boil it down to a couple steps, it would be like, you know, when you see something like that happen, identify the thing that happens like very clearly in your mind of like uh -huh. this was a racist thing, and this is the impact that it had. Um, is just step one, right? And then step two is, like, identify the people in that sphere. So, you know, we were talking about the teacher. It would be the classroom, the students, the principal, the things we talked about. And then identify the people in that sphere that you can get the message together with. Hmm. And then you can get a plan of action. And I think if people sometimes skip some of those steps and go directly mm. to canceling people or, you know, ranting on social media or, you know, organizing without identifying the problem. Also, mm. you know, ineffective. And so I, I think as far as a basic template goes, that's my first try. I like where your head's at. Um, now, uh, Colin, Mr. Gillens. <laughs> yeah. um, on the recontextualizing memories, I, I just I think there are layers to something that I've uh, been yeah. getting into recently. Um, trying to reconcile uh, 
uh, anti-racist practices with what I'm uh, going to just, you know, term that quote unquote free, uh, fierce urgency of now that you heard about from uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. King and then also Barack Obama. Um, you can think about it in that way of the parent who wants to send their child to public school because they support the public school system, but at the same time realizes that their existing public school in the year in which they're going to send their child to public school is failing. And Mm. as much support as they might have for the concept of public schooling, they might not want their specific child to be plugged into this failing system. Right. Yeah. Um, you have the control that you have um, over the sphere of things that you can control, and are you actually going to expose that to the practice that you're going to, you know, try to um, to maintain? Um, and so there is this tension in trying to reconcile um, these uh, these positions, and I think that. Um, Michael Harriet wrote this uh, this thread that I've been sitting with uh, for about a week now um, that encapsulates this uh, concept from his side um, in a quote from his mother where he says, uh, his mother uh, said, uh, black child's humanity can never be fully realized in the presence of whiteness. And mm. I mean, how does a quote like mm. that not hit you right in the face, right? So... Um, to me, when I heard this message, I, you know, I really just needed to dig into what he intended, what, uh, what lesson his mom was trying to uh, convey in that message and her upbringing. And he really does um, tell this, this uh, great sort of thread of um, understanding that if you're if you're not ever given an opportunity to explore your potential in a way that is going to benefit you uh in a way that is actually going to allow that potential to flower then uh have you ever really been given that opportunity right um so wow. the framework is actually a uh left-handed uh person who's shown some previous skill in playing the guitar left-handed and ostensibly being positively encouraged to, you know, continue in that uh, practice. You want to get a person like that some lessons, but what if the only lessons available are all taught by right-handed guitar instructors with right-handed materials? Yeah. Now you present that potential player with, some choices right but those choices all seem to leave them with some pretty unsurprisingly disappointing prospects and when you get to the second order and third order consequences of something like that um, it's not hard to imagine that left-handed person just thinking that left-handed people can't play guitar or are obviously worse at playing guitar because the materials don't exist for them to do it, or to the extent that they do, they might have to restring it a different way or learn how to play with their non-dominant hand, in which case they're having to work extra hard 
just to do what they shouldn't even really have to do to begin with because their differences aren't actually being accommodated. And when you get to those second order and third order uh, sort of consequences, you can imagine those uh, right-handed teachers who get that left-handed student. And now all of a sudden, what do they have? A problem case in their class, right? Mm. So yeah, these situations, like it, it, this, this, uh, this concept um, that he kind of dives into, it, it, it lets you explore this notion that it is possible. It's, it sounds almost like Garveyite, you know, it's possible that uh, black people might actually really just need to have a hyper focus on the things that um, allow them to be who they can potentially be, uh, sit, to have systems set up to recognize uh, differences and explore what they even might be in order to make sure that systems are, are set up in ways that are actually going to um, amount to some equity for us. And I think that that challenges this notion of anti-racism for as much as it sounds in areas like it's built off of it, because um, again, with the the Garveyite sort of uh, uh, frame, you can imagine that it it sounds uh, segregationist even, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That's fascinating. I'm, I'm like, I'm feeling little tickles in my brain from, uh, things I've seen from arguments that people have posited to me that I was like, I don't know about this one. (laughs) I'm not sure. But it sounds like maybe they were based in that philosophy and I dismissed them too quickly. Uh, And so I will have to explore that in the future. It's it's definitely something that um, I've been returning to uh, for, for days now because the I, I, I think that the concepts, they seem so uh, tied together, right? But at the mm. same time, there is this obvious uh, tension in them, yeah. Well, you, you alluded to the future while sharing just now. And I wonder if you have, um, you said it's been about a week. I wonder if you have given thought to... Uh, what the world might look like if more people adopted anti-racist practices. I know for me, uh, one, I would have a lot more time on my hands on (laughs) Sunday afternoons. (laughs) Or maybe I would just be podcasting about environmentalism or uh, or something else, some other problem uh, that people do not seem to be solving fast enough to suit my liking. (laughs) Or... Um, you know, I, like, it's easy to imagine a future where people don't have to go through the same, uh, racist experiences that you've been through, where people aren't, or family, black families don't have the talk, where, um, you know, riots aren't occurring in Minneapolis because we all know that a person was killed because of the color of their skin, right? Mm. Um, but, and for, for the other people in the room... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what do you see? I, I, I feel as though the future is brighter. I think as more people adopt these practices, um, I, just, I just feel happier. I feel lighter. 
as uh, as I even contemplate it. Have you given thought to the future or is the present so heavy um, that you're not able to see that far? I'm interested. Um, well, I was, I mean, aside from the very obvious things of personally racist and instances of systemic racism that are very acute, those mm-hmm. will diminish yeah. over time if, if we get these practices right and, you know, maybe go away. And that's something that's like, fairly obvious from from the logic of, of these things. Uh, but one thing that, you know, Colin and I have talked about extensively is is the argument that's like systemic racism in, in the way that we have it, especially in the United States, holds everyone back in a way that if we have these practices, you know, well done, it's not going to be like the world is better for black people and about the same for white people. Like, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's, it's, uh, it's kind of a lift all boats kind of deal. Um, and to give a concrete example of that, one, one of our friends actually does some research into racial disparity in health outcomes. And mm. coronavirus is actually a, a good uh, focal point for that. Because if you think about vaccine distribution, for example, mm-hmm. if you distribute vaccines to only rich people or areas with better infrastructure or all of the things that are, you know, correlated with race in a lot of geographies, um, you aren't going to get an overall public health outcome that is better for everyone, including the white people that get vaccinated, because you'll have things like rolling outbreaks. You'll have things like infrastructure that is stressed in different areas and needing to reallocate resources. You'll have, you know, stress on the healthcare system that means if hospitals are full in some area and you trip and break your leg, you can't find room at the hospital. All of these outcomes that, you know, we think affect one group disproportionately actually mm. really affect all of us. Um, and if we, if we solve that right, it's, you know, better for everyone socially and economically. So- the economist. <laughs> what was that color? Solidarity. It's just the main mm. phrase that comes to mind when the main term that sort of comes to mind when I when I think about the ways in which uh, black and indigenous people of color are held back in this country. Um, it's not just that we're held back. We have to for as much as we say that we are a part of this country. It ought to be obvious that when we say that we are being held back, that this country is being held back. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. America, <laughs> really, just try it. Take the shackles yeah. off. Just try it. I promise. I promise. I, It'll be better for us all. And I wish there was a good way to communicate that in the language of anti-racism to people who are usually not receptive to it. Because if you think about the people who are relatively hardened personal racist, you use the example of, you know, the uncle spouting off racist things at Thanksgiving. I, I struggle to, to search for a way to say, no, the things that you're doing are bad, but also if you didn't do them, you would be better off too. Mm. Yeah, and I I also struggle with the concept that you should even have to, right? Um, Have to what? Have to justify the benefit 
to your oppressing community in ceasing and desisting from your oppression. Hmm. Um, it's very challenging for me to see those uh, campaigns that you see organized from time to time where people will try to convince uh, a larger white community that, you know what? You could actually save yourself some tax dollars if you stopped killing black people. Oh, sure. That's happening here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But if they don't get um, the appeals to humanity, that is one avenue of going about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. That we will have to have a separate episode uh, where we where we kind of really dig into um, why certain segments of of our population uh, are still racist. Because we're right now we're talking about anti racism. There are different reasons, uh, and we'll we'll get there. But it's a climb. It's a climb. All right. That is going to bring us to the end of the episode. But I'm wondering if there are any last words that people need to... Anything anyone needs to get off their chest? Um, there are so many issues that I'm sure we'll dive into in the future. Okay. Colin's um, got a list. Yeah. We've... Uh, <laughs> We've had a lot of conversations, uh, in particular recent conversations that we've had about uh, medical racism that I think that people should mm -hmm. look into further for themselves. Um, so I would encourage people to, um, to do that. Uh, yeah. I think one thing that just triggered you a second ago might be uh, this question of supremacy and humanity. Uh, and I think that would be an interesting conversation to have. But but uh, no light reads in that conversation. <laughs> I would only have you read. I, I benefited, I feel like I benefited so Hard much. Hardcover reads. So much from that organization for as much <laughs> as, for as, for as deeply as I feel impacted by that situation. Um, yeah. And that's why I don't want to. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But we'll find some other ones. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sorry. I, I am a bit wrong. It's okay. Well, we knew it was going to be a vulnerable and challenging conversation. Um, so don't worry. Uh, let me uh, let me first ask Brendan. You know, I don't I don't know when Brendan's going to be back, y'all. <laughs> the schedule is serious. Um, organizations or that you might recommend or uh, ways that people can connect with you uh, to support anti-racist work? What do, you, what do you think? To connect with me to support anti-racist work? Whatever. Whatever you want. Um, no, don't connect with me. My number is not published <laughs> and that's on purpose. No. <laughs> um, I, d I don't really have the organizational infrastructure. I need to take those cues from you. Um, my, my exhortation would be do the personal work uh, that, that I kind of mentioned earlier in the podcast that's, you know, given that 
you now have the apparatus to identify things. Go back through your life and say, where are those instances that it, that it happened that I didn't notice? And what would I do in the future? I think that personal exercise is powerful enough to where you will start to realize opportunities of where you can implement anti-racist practices in your life very easily. You, you won't have to go out looking for them. You, they'll, they'll come to you. Yeah, I think um, you've asked for a soundbite a couple of times, and it's uh, stop being racist. Then ask yourself if you're being racist. And then stop being racist again. <laughs> and just keep iterating on that. <laughs> do, do you have a chart that you can point to? With the, with the right. Once it gets to be really hard to find ways that you are perpetuating systems of oppression, uh, then you're in a really good place. <laughs> Colin, mm-hmm. um, to you, ways that we can support you in your anti-racism work or organizations that you like and want to support? Um, I will tell people again to um, check out the writings of uh, Michael Harriet, um, mm-hmm. Dr. Ibram Kendi. Uh, on anti-racism in particular, uh, do your own um, looking, you know, for, do your, do your own sort of research on what, what's happening uh, with racism in ways that uh, it's going to impact the lives of the people that you know. Um, it, they're, yeah. they're, they're really not hard to find um, in terms of how people can uh, you know, reach out or communicate with me, I would say uh, Brennan maybe stole a little bit of my thunder there and that uh, I have decided I'm going to be stepping back a bit. Uh, okay. Which was also why you got a little bit of a face earlier. I'm happy to continue to have these conversations with my friends and to an extent in forums like this, I think that's uh, very necessary. But I am just going to be trying to focus a little bit more on uh, living that black life that we all say matters um, yes. as opposed to um, struggling for the right for it to exist. Uh, yeah, I, I will point out uh, just for the benefit of the audience that this was a laborious uh, conversation, particularly on Colin's part. Um, when I look when I think back over the conversation, most of the vulnerability and the challenge was born by Colin. Um, just for just so I could help make sure the conversation kept going. Let's not. I don't want anyone to leave thinking I haven't experienced racism or that I don't have uh, similar stories. It's just uh, sometimes you got to be the one that, <laughs> in terms of resilience. <laughs> We, we can't all be crying on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Colin. You deserve a lot, a lot of gratitude. Um, and thank you, everyone, who made it this far into the conversation. Uh, I suspect if you got this far, then you have learned a lot, and there's a lot of room for conversation. You can reach out to me. I am still here for the conversation, and I am organized uh, enough to do some things about some of the issues that come up so bring them to me uh go to bottomlesscoffeepodcast.com to find me or email me at jerome at jerometevans.com cool thank you both thanks jerome
Thank you for joining in the conversation today. I did notice that I forgot to thank Brendan for joining, so thank you, Brendan. If you would like exclusive access to live streams of these conversations, if you want to hear what goes on during the coffee breaks, or if you'd like to join a community of people who help to make this podcast possible, then please join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash bottomlesscoffee. Bottomless Coffee Podcast is produced by me, Jerome Evans, on social media everywhere as at Jerome T. Evans. Our Patreon producers are listed in the episode description. You can connect with the podcast on Instagram at at Bottomless Coffee Podcast. Our music is by Noir et Blanc V and God Mode. Thanks all, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.